God, as we approach your word, we do so recognizing that you are sovereign and that this is your holy word. And so, Lord, we are not reading mere words written by men, but it is holy inspired scripture. And so we ask that you would give us a respect level for your word and an adherence to it, not just in thought, but in action. And I pray, God, that you would bless us with the ability to uh, walk these things out together um, as a church. Lord, that we would see this as a commissioning for us to be those who live these things out. And so, God, um, we just ask that we would hear only what you have to say today, Lord, that you would filter my speech and that all that would come from me is what builds up the body and is from your word. So, God, thank you for being here, and thank you for your spirit being upon us. Would you give us the ability to understand and apply? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Sometimes... I really enjoyed sharing this with first service. Sometimes divine providence shines upon us when we're searching the internet. And um, <laughs> there's there's a lot of, <laughs> I had to preface that before I said it, but you guys, you understand that there's a lot of wasted time out there on on social media and, and just, you know, there's, there's more distraction now than I think I've ever seen in my life um, when it comes to what technology can do and really take our focus off the things that matter. But sometimes... <clears throat> the Lord shines through something and just gives you a gem. So I was blessed as I was preparing to teach from this passage um, to stumble across in my preparation, a website with the name of Awaken the Greatness Within. Don't go there. Um, but I, I want to share this with you because I'm really excited to share this with you. I ha- You could probably tell I'm beaming a little bit because there's so much stuff on the internet that is just crazy to me, but you're going to love this. You're really going to enjoy it. I hope you enjoy as much as I do. The following is just three of a list of 25 um, things on this particular page of the site entitled 25 quotes to inspire you to focus on yourself. (laughs) You're going to just love this and I'm not making it up. This is copy and paste people. Okay. I didn't edit any of this. I'm just giving you three because we would just... It's not what we're here for. Okay, so number one, this is these are quotes. Focus on you until the focus is on you. I know. You, inspired yet? Get ready. More. Here's more. Number two, I heard you were focusing a little more on yourself and worrying a little less about everyone else. That's beautiful. Don't these sound like Instagram-like quotes almost, like, you know, the pretty writing? It's a lot less sexy on my page, I have to admit, but all right, third one. This is the last one I'll, I'll assault your mind with. I'm in a, This is my emphasis, by the way. When you hear emphasis, it's me. Stay focused on your goals, your peace, and your happiness. Don't waste your time on anything that doesn't contribute to your growth. These are quotes. I wish that this type of religion was laughable. I wish it was something we could all laugh and be like, okay, clearly someone is messing with me here. I searched for, you know, and I look for things that people say based on certain topics. I searched for quotes about self, and this was the first website that popped up. This was the first hit. Now, I don't know if that reflects on my search history or if that's actually what everyone would get. You know, there's little factors in play like that. But people are finding this, and people are being inspired by the emptiness of these words. People are actually being inspired by this in some way. 
They're being, and we would, I, I say inspired, but what I really mean is manipulated because inspiration comes from truth and manipulation comes from lie. And in fact, this is manipulation because that's not true at all. You don't find any peace here. You don't find any rest here. This is poison. This is poison for your soul. And so make no mistake in this. This is religion. This is religion. This is what people live out religiously. We see it all over in our world today. And it's religion that assaults us as well. It's religion that tries to draw us in and tempt us into being people who are self-focused, who are always looking after themselves rather than others. Worship of self is nothing new. It's been around a really long time since Genesis. You know, at the very beginning, man and woman, what were they tempted by? You're not going to die if you eat that fruit. You're going to be like God. That's worship of self. That's idolatry. It's very core. And it's pride. But this is nothing This is nothing new to us. We read about it all throughout scripture, and God identifies it very clearly. Idolatry and disobedience to him. The world does not revolve around us. Sorry. It doesn't. The world doesn't revolve around us. Scripture is not about us. Even our individual lives are not about us. Your individual life, well, if my life isn't about me, what's it about? Great question. And speaking of false gods and idols, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, regarding this mindset that we have as believers, yet for us, there is one God, the Father. All things are from him. We exist, notice, for him. There is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through him and we exist through him. That should be an instant life adjustment. Not just for the church, but the realization that we bring to the world that this isn't about you. We exist because of God. Scripture is about him. Our lives exist for him. And to deviate and reject this truth is not going to awaken the greatness within. It's not going to awaken any greatness within you to be more self-focused. What it will awaken is an inner vacuum of self-consumption. It will open up a big old can of worms, as we would say back in the old days, a big old can of worms that is bottomless. It's fathomless. It's a vacuum that never stops. There's no bottom to the hole of self-loathing that awaits the human being that believes they are the source of their own strength and the reason for their own existence. There's no end to the self-loathing that's associated because you're never, ever satisfied with it. There's no closure. You're just always going to be consuming, trying to feed that need in yourself, and it will never be satisfied. There's no hope. There's no satisfaction, peace, or rest in found, found in seeking for greatness within ourselves. And so we understand as we look at the world around us that it has to be about something more. And I know as a church we get this, but I think we need to hear it because a lot of times I'll see people that I know love Jesus quote things that are not quite that ridiculous. Like that ridiculous level is... That's top level ridiculousness, but I'll see them quote things that are very self-focused or very, um, about me and not me, but you know, self, you know, and, and I'm tempted to do this as well. And we need to be really aware of it. Are we putting focus on Christ? Are we putting focus on the one that we exist for? Or are we trying to receive praise and admiration and honor in his place? recognize this. It's not just being praised in and of yourself. You're receiving praise that is rightly deserving for him, for yourself. That is the core and the essence of idolatry, and we should never get anywhere near it. And so how do we view our lives in Jesus as we walk forward in our faith? How do we really view our lives and live out our lives in a way that doesn't 
put the focus on us, but puts the focus on Christ. I'm so glad you asked. Colossians chapter 3. Paul goes right into this, and we're going to take two weeks to break down this section that goes between verses 1 and verse 11, um, because we want to do due diligence, and it's it's a really loaded section, and so um, this is going to be a two-part series on uh, the new self and, and what we look like in Christ. So beginning in chapter 3, verse 1, we'll read down through verse 7 for this morning, and you guys can follow along while I read for you. So... Paul says, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. And you once walked in these things when you were living in them. This is the practical side of the coin. This is the side that flips over and says, after all we've learned, this is how we live it out. And this is where we get started. And we shift from Paul's doctrinal instruction to him expecting us to make changes in our lives. And he first to the church in Colossae, and we'll see how that was really spoken to them. But we know this speaks to us as his church as well. And so he begins with the word so, building off of his prior teaching, his prior topics, and says, if you have been raised with Christ, If you're in Christ, if you've been raised by Jesus, if we have been raised with Christ, is there a better model to shape our lives after than looking at the life of Christ post-resurrection? That thought just came to my head as I was looking. If you've been raised with Christ, and I thought about how we actually study so much of Jesus's life. Do you ever think about what Jesus did after he rose from the dead? Like what his life looked like after he rose from the dead? From the moment he left the tomb to his ascension, Jesus was encouraging, discipling, teaching, restoring, strengthening. We, we should learn from all of the life of Christ. But think about the resurrection life. Think about coming back from the dead and how Jesus lived. Are we modeling our lives like that? You know, we should model our lives to look like Jesus all the time. But it's just a powerful thing to consider that after he rose from the dead, what he did. And how he restored people, how he taught people, how he ministered to others. It's a powerful thing to look at. And rather than focus on earthly things, self-promotion, self-gratification, self-admiration, since the church has been raised with Christ, we're to do what? He says in verse 1, seek the things above where he is seated at the right hand of of God. He's seated at the right hand of Father. We need to be focusing and seeking after the things that are heavenly. This is not an excuse for us to withdraw from the culture that we live in. This is not an excuse for us to pull away and to, you know, finally get that log cabin on the 5,000 acres and never be seen, ever heard of again, because I'm just seeking the things of the Lord. You know, you're, that's, not, that's not the practical application. As much as that just, you know, is what people want, especially in North Idaho. You're like, ooh, you're stepping on toes, homie. I know. Um, oh, sorry, homie is not. A cowboy. Does that work better? No, okay, sorry. Guys, this is an excuse to hide away and withdraw from work, activities in the world. In fact, if you read the whole chapter, Paul's going to go on and give us more practical application. As we continue forward, he's going to give us practical application to maintain normal relationships and good work ethic and all the things that keep us in our sphere, but in that sphere as Christ's ambassadors, not as self-consumed earthly dwelling people. 
you know, you realize that like Paul talks about this concept in, in Philippians when he says, you're not citizens of earth, you're citizens of heaven. Do we live like citizens of heaven? Do we live like people who belong to a heavenly kingdom rather than an earthly kingdom? If you could, if you could draw that out and show me what it looked like, would that be our lifestyle? Basically earthly people, but living in a heavenly kingdom here. You know, we have flesh, but we don't walk in the flesh. These types of things. What, what do our lives actually look like? The church is to no longer be concerned with the trivial passing things of earth. They need to be totally concerned with the eternal truths of heaven. That is our main focus. It's our priority. And we have to view everything against the backdrop of eternity and no longer live as if this world is all that mattered. Does this world matter? Yeah, we're here. We're here and, and God has saved, Christ has saved us. God has reached out to us through Jesus and saved us here where we are and left us here to do what? To be his ambassadors. Yes, life matters here, but is it all that matters? No. And where's our future home? Our future home is with Jesus, wherever he is, right? We can talk about that when we get into, you know, eschatology and talk about like new heaven, new earth. We're going to be on the earth. We're going to be in the heaven. We're gonna, I don't know, maybe a little bit of both. You know, but like either way, we're going to be with Jesus. We're going to be glorified. And the whole point is this, that's our future. That's our eternity. And that's what we are keeping in mind. It's what we focus on. It's what we bear in mind when we walk out our lives here. If all you look at is this earth, how are you going to live? Like people of the earth. You're going to focus on the things they focus on. How many of, how many of us are so guilty of just focusing on stuff here and not thinking about stuff in heaven? Me getting stuck in that rut of I'm just so focused on my day-to-day -day stuff. I don't have time to think about God. I don't have time to think about prayer, Bible study, you know, singing songs. When was the last time you just burst into song in your house? Dads do this all the time to embarrass their kids. But like, when was the last time you actually erupted into praise because you wanted to glorify God at a random time? That's how it is in heaven. Just start singing, start praising him. Are we doing that? You guys... We view everything against the backdrop of eternity in Christ. And so we seek the things above in heaven where Jesus is, the ideals of his kingdom. And just as a reminder, we seek his kingdom first. And when we do that, he provides all the needs. Needs, not wants, needs. Notice this, Matthew chapter 6, verses 31 through 33. After Jesus talks about anxiety, don't be anxious, he says. Don't freak out. You know, that's, that's my paraphrase. He says this in verses 31 through 33. So don't worry saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be provided for you. You see the Gentiles, the people who don't follow the Lord, he says, they're seeking after earthly things, money, food, clothing, provision, relationships, whatever those things are, they're seeking after these things, right? And when he's talking about the needs here, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? He goes, Gentiles are going after that stuff and they're seeking earnestly after it, but we don't seek after those things. We seek first the kingdom of God and he provides what we need. He takes care of the needs for us. Part of that seeking will be working. Part of that seeking will be furthering his kingdom. God always provides. How many of us, if we could, you know, set up a microphone and just start passing around the room and saying like, tell us a story about how God provided for you amazingly. I think all of us would have some stories. And the young people would be like, nah, not yet. Oh, don't, don't worry, college is coming. You know, 
After the 14th day of ramen eating, the Lord provided a beautiful bounty. I mean, like there's the God, God's going to give you, he's going to provide opportunities for him to provide for you. And you know, what's crazy is how often we try and wiggle out of those, right? God puts us in a place of need. And we're like, I got to do something. I, this is me. This is me. Like I get in a spot where God's like, trust me. I'm like, sure. But surely I can go do this and provide. He's like, no, just trust me. Just keep doing what you're doing. But if I keep doing this, my family will starve. And God's like, oh, you care about them so much more than I do. Good for you. That's fantastic. You guys, we have to have faith that he's going to provide the needs if we seek first his kingdom. Working hard, moving forward, doing what he's put in front of us to do for his glory. This is awesome. G. Campbell Morgan wrote, the believer is to seek the things above. The word Seek marks aspiration, desire, and passion. In order to seek these things, the mind must be set on them. What's your mind set on? What are you passionate about? And I, I, use this, I use this picture often. I think it's a great reminder for us. If I interviewed your friends, what you're passionate about, would the answer be Jesus or other? You know, you see this on, on, on um, sports writers do this a lot. You know, when you get towards playoff time, they'll be like, do you take this team or the field, right? Like this team that's really, really good. Or would you pick one of these, any of these other teams to win the championship? You know, if people came to you and they spent time with you and then they got interviewed, just like, so are they all about Jesus or the field? Like anything else? Like, what's their number one thing? What are they most passionate about? What do they desire the most? Who do they serve? Like, what's their focus in life? What do they center their life around? Notice this, verse two, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. That sounds very all-encompassing, doesn't it? Like, it just kind of consumes you. Fascinating word usage here. When someone was dead and buried, the Greeks very commonly would, would say they were hidden in the earth. That was the way that they would say they were buried and, and dead. We, they were, they'd been hidden in the earth, right? And it was the way that they viewed things. There was a lot of their philosophy and personal you know, Greek theology behind that. But Christians had died a spiritual death in baptism. They're not hidden in the earth. They're what? They're hidden in Christ. Now, this is really interesting. As we've often seen in Colossians, Paul will use terminology that Greek citizens would grasp and reveals to them a spiritual truth with it. This is how you see this. This is how it actually is. You just misunderstand this truth, right? There, there very well may be a wordplay here with the Greek that, with the Greek word that he chooses that they would catch. And, and it, it goes this way. Um, they're false teachers called their so-called books of wisdom, the apokrufoi, the books that were hidden all except from those who were initiated. Right. And so here, here's what it is. These are their books of wisdom that guys like me wouldn't have access to because I, I wasn't initiated. I wasn't special enough. I didn't have enough enlightenment or what have you. You know, I would never be allowed to read their books of wisdom. Well, hi, can I read the books of wisdom? No, get out. You know, like that. It just wouldn't happen. Right now. Think about this. The word Paul uses to say that our lives are hidden. The word they use for hidden is the word apokruftain, which is from the adjective apokrufos. It's the same connective word. It's the same connected word. It's an adjective of it. The one word would suggest the other, meaning that when he used this word to a very Greek church that would understand that type of thinking, they would be like, wait a minute, the hidden wisdom, our wisdom is hidden in God. 
It's as if he's saying, for you, the treasures of wisdom are hidden in your secret books. For us, Christ is the treasury of wisdom, and we are hidden in him. How mind-blowing would that be for a society that felt like they weren't able to achieve the wisdom of others? That they weren't able to tap into that kind of wisdom and understanding? How much are people looking today for that kind of knowledge? For that kind of knowledge? You think that people worship knowledge any less today than they did back then? I don't think so. People are scrounging all over this earth and all over out, out there in the universe trying to find purpose and meaning. And here's what Paul is saying. For us, Christ is the treasury of wisdom. And in Jesus, you are hidden inside of him. Full access to his wisdom, his understanding. What we're looking for in our lives is not found in self. It's found in Jesus. That's where the satisfaction is. He says this in verse four, when Christ, notice this, notice the centeredness, who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We know that this appearance of glory, Paul talks about in Romans chapter eight. We know that there's a lot of thought process behind this, but here's, here's what we know for sure. This is the affirmation of the promise that when Christ returns in his glory, we will also appear with him, children of the king. I really want to be identified as a child of the king. My name can be forgotten, but it should never be forgotten who I serve. It should never be forgotten what family I belong to. That's what matters most. And when you read that, when Christ, who is your life, appears. Um, there's lots of statements about what is life, right? People will associate their hobby with this hobby is life. You know, guitar is life or guitar hero is life or, you know, wh whatever, whatever it is, like people will associate in these ways, you know, and, and that's the thing that they identify with, you know, Bay is life. I'm fine with that as long as Jesus is Bay. Like, I mean, like it, it, it has to, yeah, <laughs> it has to apply there, right? <laughs> Sorry, but you guys understand this. I'm getting blank stares from half and, and understanding smiles from others. So you guys, here's the whole point of it. Jesus is our life. Christ is our life. And when he is the focus and everything to us, that's what we should be known for. We shouldn't be known for our hobbies. How ridiculous is it that we're known for a hobby instead of our savior? And so this isn't condemnation. This is, this is for us to look introspectively, not only individually, but as a collective body, as a community, are we known for Jesus? Are we known for being a church that's filled with the spirit? Are we known as people whose life is in Christ? He's everything to us. If that's the case, if that's how it should be, now Paul sets some things in his crosshairs and he's going he's gonna to go after it. Therefore, verse 5, as my old Bible teacher used to say, when there's a therefore, look and see what it's there for. Put to death what, <laughs> put to death what belongs to your earthly nature. What belongs to your earthly nature? So glad you asked. Paul tells us sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. And you once walked in these things when you were living in them. Therefore, Paul's theology will lead to an ethical response. If this is what we believe, then we live it, right? Faith without works is dead. You can't say that you believe in Jesus and not serve him. It's that type of thing. 
And so the, if we believe this to be true and we agree with what we've studied thus far, we have to put to death what's earthly in our nature. And what he does at the onset, and this is why this is going to take multiple weeks to get through, he's going to name some other things that need to go, but he starts with sexual sin. He starts with sexual immorality. He says, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire. Those things are all connected to sexual promiscuity. They're all connected to that same vein. Notice Paul does not say, stuff into the sock drawer what belongs to our earthly nature or put it into your explosive closet. Do you have an explosive closet? Here's what I mean by explosive closet. So full, you turn the doorknob and it comes at you hard, right? This is awesome. We had an explosive closet in our house and up until recently because we got rid of some stuff. But it was that blanket closet that everything just gets stuffed into that we don't use, but we keep because, you know, why get rid of it? And, and it's all in this closet and you'd like dare your kids to go open it because, you know, like just shoots them across the room. Everyone should have, everyone should experience the explosive sock drawer or the explosive closet. It's just a fun thing to have. But here's what Paul's saying. When it comes to our earthly nature, when it comes to our earthly nature, when it comes to sin, do not stuff it into a drawer. Do not put it under the mattress. Do not put it in a closet. Kill it. Put it to death means kill it. Be rid of it. It doesn't live anymore. If we've died and been raised again in Christ, then our former desires are to be put to death because that's the old life. And it is a misrepresentation of the Lord when we go back to former sin and we call ourselves Christian. When we are dabbling in former sin, is there grace? Is there forgiveness? Yes, but we must repent. We can't stay in that place. We can't play around with it and toy with it. It misrepresents the Lord. It's not what he's about. It's anti-God and none, absolutely none of the changes that we're to make in our lives in dealing with sin are to take place prior to our lives being hidden with Christ and God. Please make a note of that. I'll say it again slower, but I won't slow my voice down. So it, none, absolutely none of the changes that we are to make in our lives in dealing with sin are to take place prior to our lives being hidden with Christ and God. That means that if you are trying to reform self or we're trying to get other people to reform their lives and they don't know Jesus, we're putting them in a car, giving them the keys with no gas in the tank. They're not going anywhere. They're not going to make progress. It's why when so many people come up to me and talk to me about the problems in their lives and I tell them, you need to get right with Jesus. They're like, no, no, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian. Really? Forgive me. If this offends you, forgive me, but consider what I'm saying. If you are powerless against your sin, consider whether you're saved or not. Just consider it. And the reason I say that is because Christ in you is the power and all the strength that you need. And if you will walk in that, he will give you victory over sin. And if you look at sin in your life and you go, I just keep spinning my wheels. How many of us know people that spin their wheels all the time in sin? Seriously, I, the same sin never getting victory over it, just spinning and spinning and spinning and spinning. Challenge them. Do you belong to Jesus? Do you belong to Jesus? Because if you do, he gives you strength to get past it. Will that take time? Sure, it could take time. You might stumble, but you confess and you repent and you move forward. I had a young person once come to me and say, I have no control over this sin in my life. 
and I told him to get saved. He's from a Christian family. And he goes, how can you say that to me? I was like, because I love you. That's the honest truth. I love you enough to look you in the eyes and say, if you don't have power over sin in your life, you need to give your life to Jesus. You need to give your life to the Lord. You guys, in the past, and, and, and maybe even now, we've been in these situations to help people, to change their habits. We're giving them all this advice, all these efforts at self-reformation. Well, that's the problem. They're trying to self-reform. They're trying to change themselves, and they are absolutely powerless to get it done. They're in the car. Fancy car, too. You know, it's called religion. And they're putting, they're putting keys in it, and it's got no gas. What's going to happen? You're not going anywhere. You know, to which I automatically hear teens from the youth group, and I go, what if it's parked on a hill facing downward? Shit, would you just... Immediately, I hear that little response. Oh, yeah, well, what if it? Just stop it. Don't, oh, yeah, what if it? You understand what I'm saying. You are powerless to go anywhere. And eventually, that hill stops. And I'm going to take your brakes away just for making fun of me. <laughs> you can't take our brakes away. I'll take the airbag away if you keep going. Here's the thing. Self-reformation gets us nowhere. The only way we're able to put to death what belongs to our earthly nature is if Christ is our life. Amen? If Jesus is our life, we are empowered to move past these things. But if he is not your life, if he is not the focus, if he's not everything to you, you will continue to spin your wheels forever. And I'm very, very afraid of people who are in that place. I'm very afraid for people like that. I don't decide who is saved and who is not. That's not my job. But we look at people and we see the fruit of their lives. And when you see a barren branch with no leaves and no fruit, be concerned. Be concerned and speak to it. If Jesus is life, then you have the power via the Holy Spirit to clean house. He's given you the equipment to clean that house out. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, all are referenced in the sexual sin genre. It's interesting to me when people say that the Bible's outdated in its definitions of what sexual, sexuality should look like and what it should not look like. You ever had someone tell you the Bible's outdated? I have it happen. The Bible's outdated. It doesn't, doesn't talk to that. If you haven't heard that recently, talk to some more people outside the church. You'll hear it very quickly. We would do well to remember that what Paul is saying right here was very controversial for his day. Greek culture was not a chaste culture. It was a very robust, live the way you want to, do whatever you want to, with whomever you want to. And just like our day and age, sexuality was worshipped and sinfully misused in their culture just as much as it is today. This is not outdated. If it's outdated because it disagrees with culture, then it was outdated when Paul said it, which means that it's dateless, which means it's God. It means it's timeless. It's God's ideals. It's what he pre-established. You see, whenever something is immediately like, oh, oh no, oh, you're just so old school. I'm like, well, why is that a bad thing if it's true? Why is that a bad thing if it's true, if it's based on truth? Chastity was a completely new virtue which Christianity brought into the world. It was unheard of. Now, the Jewish culture understood it, but you got into the Greek and the Roman world. Oh, man, they were like, who are you? You know, like, this is what we do. This is our lifestyle. Do you realize how quickly you can offend people by telling them their lifestyle may not be lined up with what God wants them to do? 
it's easy to say in a room like this, but when you get close enough with people to be friends with them, you're like, dude, I don't think that that's a good lifestyle choice to honor Christ with. Oh, you'll find out if they're a real friend. They might leave. You guys, sexual relationships before marriage, outside of marriage were normal and accepted practice in Greek culture. It's becoming a normal and accepted practice in our culture. And, and to the point where we have to be very aware that we need to be teaching and training the next generation what the Bible says about sexual purity. What the Bible says about how marriage is a special thing that God has given to us. And how outside of marriage, sex has no place. These are very provable, seeable things in the Word of God. We can walk you through them very clearly. You basically have to deny Scripture to say it's not there. And again, uncaring of what the world thinks, God is the only one who defines what acceptable sexuality is and what it is not. And Scripture's clear. Um, the first four aspects of the earthly nature, Paul wants to talk about these things. And I just want us to take heed that it's not outdated, that it applies now, and that we apply it to ourselves. Church, if we find ourselves stumbling in this way, there is forgiveness. Go before the Lord. We need to go before him and repent of these things if they're in our lives. If, if there's something like pornography, if there's something like an inappropriate relationship with someone outside of marriage, if we don't even understand what the establishment of marriage is, come to the Lord, repent. Here be, you'll be cleansed. The Lord will heal you of these things, but Jesus has to be life. Jesus must be your life in order to be free from devices that the enemy is using to tear you apart. You make Jesus the center. And remember this, God made sex. He's the only one who defines the context in which it is blessed and which it is sin. We let him define it. He made it. Amen? As long as we walk with that, guys, we're going to be okay. He doesn't just stop at those sins, however. He finishes off when he calls out these specific sins with one more thing, and he says, greed, which is idolatry. It does connect in the same idea, but there's a really interesting thing to see here. The desire to have more is the very specific translation of that word greed. In the Greek word, it's pleonexia. It's translated the desire for more. But to read what Greek philosophers would talk about that word, pleonexia, it's interesting. They defined it as a desire that couldn't be satisfied. And they said that you might as easily satisfy it as you might fill a water bowl with a hole in it. How satisfiable is a water bowl with a hole in it? It's just keep on pouring forever, right? It's that desire for more that never ends. It's never satisfied, okay? And so what's interesting is it's also been described by secular culture as a ruthless self-seeking desire. Ruthless self-seeking. Its basic idea is it's the desire for something we have no right to have. You have no right to have. You never wanted something you have no right to have, have you? <laughs> everyone's thoughts on the screen. No, it's basic idea is this. You guys, it's the desire for something we have no right to have. It's a sin with a very wide range. If it's a desire for money, it leads to theft. If it's a desire for prestige, it leads to evil ambition. If it's a desire for power, it leads to sadistic tyranny. If it's a desire for a person, it leads to sexual sin. It's that kind of desire. We see this all over. We see this all over our world today. And what's interesting is how often we don't recognize these things in our lives at their early stage. Sin is a cancer, and it grows if you don't deal with it. You have to deal with it. You got to get it out. C.F.D. Mool said this, 
this type of desire, this wordplay on Exia, it's the opposite of the desire to give. It's the opposite of the desire to give. That's powerful to me because of who God is and what his nature is. Is God someone who takes or someone who gives? You know, we think of Job, you know, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Yeah, but I'm talking in the context of our salvation. Did God give or take from us? God gives to us new life. If we best want to show his nature and his character, we are people who give and give graciously and give even when it's not deserved and forgive even when we're not, even when someone's not worth forgiving or worthy of forgiveness. We give it anyway because God loved us while we were dead in sin and trespasses. The opposite of the desire to give is what this kind of greed is. And Paul says this, because of these things, verse six, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. And you once walked in these things when you were living in them. Notice this, that type of mindset, a worldly mindset that associates with the kind of desires that the world has is disobedience to God. He ties it in with, an. you thought you were done with obedience when you moved out of your parents' house. And some kid's like, I'm trying to be done with it and I'm in my parents' house. Like, but you guys think about this. Obedience is something that's necessary for us to learn at a young age because it applies all throughout our lives. When I'm not obeying my parents, I'm obeying God. And even if I had parents that didn't always obey God, he still put me in that place to show them respect when I was in their home. Now that I have my own home, I model for my kids what obedience looks like by, like, by obeying God himself. And so am I modeling that in a way that they see and respect me because I respect God and because I walk with him? We need to recognize this church. God's wrath is coming for the disobedient. And so those who are in Christ cannot be labeled as disobedient. In fact, our church should be branded with the knowledge that we are an obedient church to God, no matter what it costs. We are an obedient church. We don't just identify with Jesus through words. We identify with him through actions. And the list of sinful practices listed in verse five is described as the disobedient lifestyle. He's going to give us more next week. But obedience is the proof of relationship we have with God in Christ. If you want to prove that you belong to Jesus, we obey him. Need more proof? 1 John 2. And I challenge you all to spend significant time in the letter of 1 John because it is absolutely disarming to our pride. The, the, the letter of 1 John disarms our pride because he calls us on things that we need to deal with and calls for us to walk with the Lord in that resurrection life that he's given us. 1 John 2, verses 3 through 6. This is all easy. This is easy to do. This is how we know that we know him if we keep his commands. Simple in word, but not simple to do. The one who says, I have come to know him and yet doesn't keep his commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word truly in him, the love of God is made complete. This is how we know we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. Just as who walked? It's in there. Go ahead and say it. Jesus. So interview time. How are we doing? Are we walking the way Jesus walks? Do our lives look like Jesus? If you're like, no, not even close. Well, why not? Why would he command us to do something we can't do? Would he command us to do something we can't do? You ever wonder about that passage in 1 Peter? We are to, to obey the command, be holy as I am holy. Do you ever wonder about that? 
Why would God call us to be holy if we can't be? Most people go, well, can you be holy? Well, no, I can't be holy. In Christ, can you be holy? If your life is in Christ and you are filled with the Holy Spirit, can you live a holy life? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. Now you're like, but no one's ever going to do it. Why do we always start from defeat? Why do we always look at it from that point of view? Well, I'm never going to accomplish it. Well, you know, it's like mom and dad used to say, yeah, not with that attitude, you're not. You know, <laughs> that doesn't mean that we're not stepping up and, and doing the things that God has called us to do and walking in the power of his love and seeing just what he can work through our lives. You guys, if we want to know if we're in him, the one who remains in him walks in the way that Jesus walks. That's our collective calling in Jesus is to walk the way he walks. Our old disobedient life should be a thing of the past church. And, and I fear that all too often um, we are made comfortable in that place. All too often we're made comfortable to remain in that place. Don't worry. You know, God just pours out grace on you. So what? So you can keep sinning? Doesn't Romans 6 talk about that? Should we sin more so that grace should abound more? No. We want to look like Jesus. And that means that when I recognize sin in my life, I deal with it because that has nothing to do with Jesus. It doesn't look anything like him. So we deal with it. When we see these things coming into our lives, church, I just want to heighten our awareness. Are we kicking it out? Are we putting to death earthly desire as it comes? Does it go just as quickly? so that we can look like Jesus, so we can walk like Jesus. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. Aren't you thankful? I am so thankful that there's no condemnation in him. But that means that whenever something that is not of Christ tries to enter my life, my alarms go off. I want nothing to do with it. Does sin repulse us? Is it grotesque to us? And do we own it when we commit it? I want to encourage you, church, not to associate or toy with your sin. I think of Matthew chapter 5, um, and I, I didn't put it on the screen or anything, but it's that passage of Scripture talks about if your eye causes you to, uh, to, to sin, gouge it out. If your hand's causing you to sin, cut it off. And, and imagine being in the crowd listening to Jesus teach these things and sermon. I'd be like, he said to what now? <laughs> like, yeah, well, I saw you looking at that girl the other day, Harold, so get to work. You know, like, I mean, uh, th here's the thing. What is Jesus saying? Is he saying literally go and gouge? I mean, we'd all be like maimed and grotesque in here, like not if we, if we cut our tongue out every time we said something we shouldn't say. What's he getting at? He's saying this, be aggressive and deal with your sin. Don't let it attach itself to you. He's saying exactly what Paul said here in Colossians, do away with your earthly nature, put it to death. Can I give you guys as we close just one encouragement on ways that we can do this practically. A lot of times we, we hear something like this. We're like, yep, I get it. I see what the word says. I agree with it. How do I live it out? Let me give you one practical thing you can do. Just one. Okay. When we were in Sunday school, for those of us who were in Sunday school as kids, our teachers would give us assignments and we would have to go home and do something. And if we came back and we recited it, we got a prize right? I was really stoked about those prizes when I was a kid, right? Because not everyone had a little plastic decoder ring. But here's the thing. What was it? Memorize what? Memorize scripture. <laughs> yeah, yeah, scripture. That's also in scripture. But memorize scripture, right? It was memorizing the Bible. 
Why do teachers have young children memorize scripture? Yes, because it's biblical. Why do adults not memorize scripture? Yeah. You guys, I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands. How many of us adults, all the teens are like, oh, make them raise their hands, bro. Like... (laughs) How many, how many of us adults are actively memorizing scripture right now? And if not, why not? If you are rock on, but if you're not, why not? Why are we not doing that? Why is that not an active part of our life? Why does it matter less now than it did back then? It's the same principle. You guys, let me encourage you that memorization is temptation protection memorization is temptation protection. Lord gave me that years ago, and I've shared it with so many kids. If you want to protect yourself against temptation, memorize the word of God. Psalm 119.11, I have treasured your word in my heart so that I may not sin against you. Psalm 40 verse 8, I delight to do your will, my God, and your instruction is where? It's deep within me. David's not writing about these things being like, it's on a page in my Bible, and I believe it. What does he say? The word of God is buried deep inside of me. It's something that's deep. Do you think that Paul didn't know his Bible or didn't quote scripture? Look at the writer of Hebrews, over 60 references to the Old Testament. You think that didn't come off? Memorization, knowing those things? You guys, don't let memorization go away. Memorize the word of God. As adults, your kids will follow suit. Even if they don't within the first year or two, they'll follow suit eventually. So many times we have these temptations that are coming up in our lives, these evil desires, these sins, and I wonder how much we're just lacking that word of God, having the counter for it, the answer for it. And it's important that we remember that we've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer us that lives, but Christ lives in us, and the life that we now live by flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God who loves us and gave himself for us, Galatians 2, 20 and 21. You guys, I'm not showing off that verse has reminded me so many times that my life isn't my own. That verse has kept me from sin. That verse has convicted me in moments where I thought I was going to mess up. I remember knowing it as a young man, staring temptation in the face, and that verse convicted me in the moment and I walked away. If that word hadn't been in my heart, I don't know what I would have done. How many situations have we fallen to? How many temptations have we given into? Because God's word wasn't right on the tip of our lips. I encourage you, church, memorization is temptation protection. Memorize the word of God. Lock it deep in your heart. You're going to need it. And I tell you what, if we want to live lives that look more like Jesus, we're going to have his words right in here always. Amen? Let's pray together. God, your word truly is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And so as we go to a time of worship, I just ask God that you would encourage us with these things. Lord, that um, we would take seriously um, just some practical application of what we see in this text. And Lord, that we that we would deal with sin. And God, I really feel like uh, a lot of times in, in the past in my life, when conviction of sin has come, I felt condemned. And God, I don't want people here to feel condemned. Lord, I want conviction on our part as we respond to your word to see that you are calling us to walk upright with you, that you're not far off 
yelling at us angrily. Lord, you're standing by our side with your arm extended to us as we sit in the mud saying, come on, clean up. It's time to have a closer walk. It's time to move forward. You sat there long enough. God, if some of us feel like we've been sitting in a sin that we have been tempted by, convicted by, I pray that two things would happen this morning, Lord, that they would confess that to you and be cleansed because we know your word says you're faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness when we confess and that they would tell someone in the body. That these guys and gals would have friendships and family connection with people here to go to them and say, I need you to pray for me. I need you to walk with me. I'm struggling, but I want to be free. And Lord, I pray that we would find ourselves in you, that you would be our life. Lord, that that's where the strength to do this would come from. Thank you for loving us, loving us enough, Lord, to convict us. Thank you for loving us so much that you don't leave us in a state that destroys us or robs us of joy. And Lord, maybe that's where some of us are as well this morning. Maybe not lost, but being robbed of our joy by the enemy through temptation. God, I pray that you deliver them. By the power of your spirit, deliver people from being enslaved, losing their joy, feeling like everything's being sucked out of them. Jesus, come in, fill that void because you are everlasting and you can satisfy our needs. Work in this time as we worship.